the best of our knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. On today's episode, it's back to school season. We'll speak with teachers getting a crash course in computer science in New York. The best of our knowledge host emeritus Bob Barrett will report on a high school social studies teacher in Florida who toured sites of the Holocaust in Europe. And a 200-year-old time capsule turns up empty. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. After the summer break, students are back in the classroom. But days before some high school students in New York were back at their desks, their teachers were attending classes of their own. New York is ramping up new computer science learning standards statewide. A recent week-long conference on the campus of Siena College worked to get educators up to speed, connecting first-time and experienced computer science teachers. I traveled to the Siena campus in Loudonville for this report. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. As New York continues its rollout of computer science standards adopted in 2020, Siena College computer science professor Jim Matthews says teachers across the state need to be ready to educate students entering eighth grade. There's a New York State timeline that says those students should meet all of these standards by the time they graduate from high school. So um, high school should be ready for them. They, they should be doing this for their other high school students too, right? I always, I always say to um, people, and especially school administrators, we're helping you get your curriculum into the 1990s. Matthews said half of American high schools don't offer any computer science classes. As technology advances and computer science becomes a more valuable skill set, many teachers are receiving training they didn't get in high school or college themselves. Maureen Conway, an adjunct professor at Siena and teacher at the Mahonison Central School District in Schenectady County, has been a state-certified math teacher for 23 years and has been teaching computer science at Mahonison for eight years. She says training for CS was a challenge at first. Math is very structured, so you had to like adjust away from uh, being so structured when you're in the introduction course. You have to meet the kids where they are, you want to keep them engaged, you don't want them intimidated by it, which computer science can be like. Conway was among Mahonison instructors who benefited from a program where Siena provided the ramp up to teaching computer science. They trained us, they gave us all the material, they set us up for success so our students could have dual enrollment college credit by taking this computer science class and then move on to college level when they graduated. My second reason was my own children went into STEM college programs and their high school experience did not have any computer science and it was more challenging. So I realized it needs to start in the high school. The professional development program at Siena to train high school teachers has been in effect for more than five years. An experienced math instructor Heather Thibodeau of Mamaroneck High School is getting a crash course. I've been teaching for 20 years, so it was definitely a necessity for me to have um, a curriculum that Siena has developed, as well as having support from the teachers here at Siena, as well as, you know, being able to talk to Matt about just like, what do you do in your classroom? Matt Fowler, a math teacher at Valley Central High School in Orange County, has been teaching computer science for five years 
He likes how Siena's program brings experienced and new CS teachers together. If you're teaching computer science in schools now because there's not many of us, you're often on an island at your own district, there's not somebody in your building you can go to. So this provides us a community of teachers that we can talk to, hey, how did you teach this? Hey, my kids were struggling with this. Is there another avenue that worked well for you? Only about 5% of students in New York currently take computer science classes. While the new statewide standards aim to boost those numbers, Robin Flatland, a Siena computer science professor, says students are the best advertisers. You can get students to go to other classes and talk with their friends about taking the computer science class. That's a good way. We also like to display their work. Um, you know, in our intro course, it's about multimedia, and they're creating personal images that are quite Piece, nice pieces of art. Um, they, they look like art, but they program them to create them. And so we can, we can share those and advertise those and makes people wonder, what are they doing in that class? For the best of our knowledge, I'm Lucas Willard. Most school districts welcome new teachers and staff before students arrive, but few districts can likely say they welcomed more than 125 new personnel. The Schenectady City School District in upstate New York recently did just that onboarding dozens of teachers and clinicians, including psychologists and social workers. The best of our knowledge is Dave Lucas caught up with new teachers and district administrators as they began three days of training to prepare for the 2023-2024 school year. Schenectady Schools Superintendent Anibal Soler says the district is starting the new year on a high note. One of the biggest concerns all of us have is hiring new talent, new recruitment. We have 124 new staff members joining us, so our human resources staff, our teaching and learning staff did a great job recruiting uh, some teachers to fill some voids of those who either retired or moved on to other, other careers. New fifth grade teacher Suzanne Sears is up for the challenge. This is a, a huge district compared to what I'm coming from. I just moved here from Wyoming and a very rural country school. So this is a very diverse, exciting kind of district. So lots of opportunities for growth and for my kids and for myself. So I'm excited. Solaire says the new teachers will attend a variety of sessions, including brushing up on new technology, trauma-informed practices, the student information system, school and district expectations, implementation of individual education plans, and more. Elijahwan McGill is a new substitute teacher at Page Elementary. Because I'm the building sub, I'll be teaching a little bit of everything. I'm really looking forward to teaching English and math. I've taught both of those things at the high school level, and I feel like I built a great rapport with students doing that, but I'm kind of excited to see what science and social studies are like, too. Solaire says he's getting the new hires situated. My biggest challenge is working with the board to make sure that we have, you know, funding to hire teachers, uh, make sure that we have all of our classrooms filled with high-quality uh, uh, certified teachers. Uh, the biggest challenge for me is now, once we have our staff, now it's the work around professional learning, making sure that our kids are getting exposed to uh, top talent, good instruction, and, you know, we have a lot of challenges with our academic outputs, so making sure we're getting kids to read, you know, reading by grade level, getting our graduation rate improved. That'll be the work of these teachers along with their peers. Reporting for the best of our knowledge, I'm Dave Lucas. You're listening to the best of our knowledge. New York State education officials recently hosted a workshop for teachers and administrators as they design student programs for our youngest learners. Our Jody Cowan attended the seminar that aims to build an educational foundation that begins at birth. 
More than 220 educators from across the state gathered at the New York State Museum in Albany for the first in-person P3 Summer Institute since before the pandemic. The State Education Department, working with the Council on Children and Families, organized the day of events on using reading to support early childhood learning and development. Dr. Ronald Ferguson, a lecturer at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government and founder of nonprofit The Basics, Inc., gave the morning's keynote speech. He outlined several principles that he says can be built into families' everyday lives and activities to support young learners. Maximize love, manage stress, talk, sing, and point, count, group, and compare, explore through movement and play, and read and discuss stories. The point is that they really do help your child to thrive. I think of the brain as a muscle. You've all heard the phrase brain power. It's a matter of empowering our infants and our toddlers and our preschoolers to have a great life, and it's within our reach to do that. While emphasizing the importance of building a foundation for young learners, Ferguson said the basics principles could also be used to address the loss of learning that many older students are experiencing in a post-pandemic educational landscape. It's never too late. The brain changes for your entire life. You can be 80 years old, you're still learning. And so having experiences that not only give you the information, but also wrap you in a circle of love that help you know that other people are supportive of you, that the work is embedded into relationships. And it takes leadership. And any of us can be a leader. New York State Board of Regents Chancellor Lester Young Jr. said strengthening early childhood development is one of the most effective ways to bolster public education. We're emphasizing zero to three. That isn't always the purview of the school system. We have to figure out creative ways to reach children before they get to the schoolhouse door. Melissa Hasty, director of early childhood for the Albany City School District, says students who receive educational support in their youngest years see benefits all the way through high school. That early childhood component is really that language component and that social-emotional piece. And so if we can really strengthen that in that birth through three realm as children enter us, we can begin to continue working on that foundation that the families built to strengthen um, that, that and the cognitive components. Excited to bring the day's discussion back to her classroom, Hasty says getting parents and community members involved is essential. We have done in our district some parent universities um, for our incoming families, uh, three, four, or five. And I think that bringing that back post-COVID in person and the ideas that Dr. Ferguson just shared are so simplistic but so powerful. And I'm really excited to get right back into the work, to, into the classrooms and into the buildings and support that and build those relationships with families. For the best of our knowledge, I'm Jody Cowan. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. A Pensacola, Florida area high school teacher spent part of her summer vacation in Europe touring sites of the Holocaust, a powerful experience that she says gave her a whole new perspective that she will bring back to her students. This story from station WUWF comes from The Best of Our Knowledge producer and host emeritus Bob Barrett. Since she began her career as a classroom social studies teacher in 1997, Robin Blaylock has always made it a point to make the Holocaust part of her lesson plan. It's 
been one of those subjects I just don't skip because it's so integral for kids to understand how it started, what happened, and then what happened afterwards for the Jewish people and for humanity as a whole. Blaylock feels students should learn the depths of human behavior to not only remember those who suffered, but to prevent similar actions in the future. After many years teaching in the Escambia County School District, Blaylock is moving on and returning to the classroom at Santa Rosa High School, where she'll be closer to her home in Milton. Over a decade ago, she began attending workshops hosted by the Gulf Coast Center for Holocaust and Human Rights Education in Mobile. In 2012, they offered to send me to the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous Summer Seminar in New York at Columbia University. And that was my first experience with JFR. For years, JFR, that's the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous, recognized people from all nations who saved Jews during the Holocaust. After attending that summer seminar and then their advanced seminar in 2020, Blaylock qualified for this year's European study program in Germany and Poland. With the Gulf Coast Center as her sponsor, she took off to actually see what she had been teaching for all those years. It's a 13-day trip through Germany and Poland. Um, We started in Munich with the background of how the Nazi party came to power, went to the site of the Beer Hall Pusht, then we um, proceeded to Nuremberg, where we got to see Room 600, where the Nuremberg trials took place. Uh, We went to uh, Dachau, went to Buchenwald, and we proceeded to go into a little town called Sandemirz outside of Warsaw, um, where one of the early massacres happened. They took all of the Jews from Sandemirz and marched them to the woods, and the next day there were no more Jews in Sandemirz. In between, we went to Auschwitz, so we saw Auschwitz and Birkenau. So we started where Hitler came to power. We kind of traced through the different events of the rise of the Nazi power. We stopped at the Wannsee House where the decision about what the final solution would be. We looked at the camps, but we also looked at what the thought process behind the final solution was and the architecture of the camps and the architecture of the transportation. How preserved are these sites? Dachau is recreated. There's nothing original there. Treblinka, there was nothing left to be found. Treblinka's memorial is um, stones with the names of towns carved onto them as a lasting memorial to the towns that sent people to Treblinka. And Treblinka had an almost non-existent survival rate. Auschwitz and Birkenau take the idea of reconstruction rather than replacement. So when they redo a site, like when we were there, they were redoing one of the women's barracks. They're using as many original materials as possible. So they'll go to partially destroyed pieces and take parts of it to help recreate. If they can't use original materials, then they document which pieces are not authentic. Auschwitz and Birkenau, obviously being the most famous ones, are better preserved than some of the others that were destroyed right after the war. Who destroyed them, the Allies or the Germans, before the Allies got there? Mostly the Germans destroyed them because they didn't want a lasting record of what happened because they were losing. They kept meticulous records, which is how we know the Holocaust happened, because they thought they were going to win the war and then they would have this documentation for the Thousand Year Reich. But when they started to lose, they didn't want anyone to know what they had done. Well, there are fewer and fewer survivors. Yes. How important is it to get as much documentation of this as there possibly can be? There's no doubt that we need to document it. There's the old quote, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. One of the teachers that I was on the trip with put it very succinctly that we are the last living links to the people who survived the Holocaust. When we're not in the classroom or when our kids aren't around, there will be no living links to that history anymore. 
So for us to document it, to tell their stories is imperative that they don't just become statistics on a piece of paper. And the deniers are getting more and more oxygen, it seems. Unfortunately, yes. I haven't had to deal with them too much in a classroom. Occasionally, you'll run across an adult who says, you know, this just doesn't happen if there's no proof, if you can't prove this. There's too much documentation. There are too many accounts written for it to just be, as they call, hokum or made up or fake news. Since you're going into a new school this year, do you know offhand if you're going to be able to use this knowledge, use this experience to do your own curriculum on the Holocaust? Um, I met with my principal. He was very excited about about the tour and that I had gone on, and he's a former social studies teacher, so that helps. Um, I still do curriculum development and help with workshops for the Gulf Coast Center for Holocaust and Human Rights Education. They have the ability to call me and say, hey, we need this resource, or we have someone who wants a lesson plan or somebody who wants you to, to come help them do a workshop. So there's ways that I can give back for the opportunity that I got. Robin Blaylock has started the new school year teaching social studies at Santa Rosa High School in Milton, Florida. For the best of our knowledge, I'm Bob Barrett in Pensacola. Time capsules, objects buried or concealed for decades, can be an exciting way to connect directly with history. But things don't always go as planned. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point is the site of centuries of American history, but the ceremonial opening of a recently discovered time capsule left cadets and staff with more questions than answers when a nearly 200-year-old lead box turned up empty. For this story, we turn to reporter Jesse King, host of fellow WAMC National Productions Program 51%, and now Hudson Valley Bureau Chief for WAMC. Anticipation was high in West Point's Robinson Auditorium, where an anxious crowd of cadets, faculty, alumni, and reporters gathered to crack open a time capsule discovered earlier this summer. The sealed box, measuring about one square foot, was found under the Academy's Thaddeus Kosciuszko Monument, the base of which has been under renovation after a cadet noticed cracks in the structure in 2021. U.S. Military Academy Command historian Jennifer Voitschild called it a novel opportunity to uncover some of West Point's earliest history. While no evidence of the time capsule exists in the Academy's records, historians at the West Point Museum say the Kosciuszko Monument has never been moved, so presumably the capsule had been there since its installation around 1828 or 1829, 27 years after the Academy's founding. Let's see what's in that box. You bet. In the lead-up to the opening, cadets swapped predictions on social media with various levels of seriousness. Some speculated the box can contain personal artifacts or prints of Kajusko, who died in 1817. Maybe they'd find old class rings, medals, coins, or newspapers. And on the more whimsical side, some wondered slash hoped whether there'd be treasure maps, a box inside a box, or the original recipe for West Point's chili. Brigadier General Shane Reeves, dean of the academic board, joked about Geraldo Rivera's anticlimactic opening of Al Capone's vault in the 1980s, which turned out to be empty, before sharing his hopes. I'm hoping that we open it and there's something in there like the Terminator arm, which shows that time travel is possible. John Connor is the humanity savior and that ChatGPT is the beginning of Skynet and we're all getting prepared. That's what I'm hoping for. Perhaps Reeves spoke too soon, because when archaeologists finally pried open the capsule's lid... What do we see? dust. Oh, there's nothing in there. Oh, man. Nothing but dirt. At first glance, anyway. 
While historians bought them some time by going over the history and significance of Kosciusko, the West Point team of archaeologists and volunteer cadets took turns peering into the box and scooping out a few clumps of silt lining the bottom, only to have some of those clumps crumble in their hands. After the ceremony, West Point archaeologist Paul Hudson admitted it was disappointing. We built up to this quite a bit, and I'll tell you the truth, that was the last outcome that I expected. Wojciech Wardecki, an international cadet from Poland, was supposed to help carry the capsule's contents around the stage so audience members could get a closer look. His services obviously turned out not to be needed, but he remains intrigued. For Wardecki, this just sets off another mystery to solve. Why would anyone put a box, an empty box, in, 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 a, in a monument of Tadeusz Kościuszko that lasted almost 200 years and... After, after opening that, it was empty. Uh, as an international cadet from Poland, uh, I feel a special, special bond to Tadeusz Kościuszko because he was uh, obviously, obviously from Poland, from Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So the opening of the box and really everything that's related to Tadeusz Kościuszko is somehow personal to me because I can see the legacy, the, uh, the heritage of Poland in the United States. A contemporary of the Founding Fathers, Kosciuszko was a Polish military engineer and leader who served as a colonel in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. He helped oversee the construction of fortifications at West Point, and after the American Revolution, he took his expertise and fought for similar causes in Europe, ultimately becoming a national hero in Poland, Lithuania, France, and Belarus. While sure a new print of Kosciuszko would have been cool, the West Point Museum already boasts some portraits of the Patriot, as well as his sword, one of his medals, and even a lock of hair. And Hudson isn't necessarily giving up. While the box's contents are underwhelming at first glance, he plans to shift through the silt to see if there are any hidden treasures. He notes the bottom edge of the capsule was cracked, likely allowing water and time to destroy anything inside, especially if it was organic material like paper or bone. Meantime, the lid offers at least hopes of a clue, a stamp reading E.W. Bank, New York, perhaps the capsule's manufacturer. We're going to remove all that sediment and we'll screen it through some fine mesh screen and see if anything comes out of it, uh, any artifacts or, uh, you know, we, we might come up with some different ways that we can test it and see if it's just sediment that infiltrated the box or if it was something that disintegrated over time. That or a 19th century cadet senior prank has finally paid off. For the best of our knowledge, I'm Jesse King. Jesse King is WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau Chief and hosts the WAMC National Productions Weekly Program, 51%. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. With the start of the new academic year, Massachusetts has launched a free college program for residents age 25 and older. The program offers community college students last-dollar support to cover the cost of tuition, books, supplies, and any services they might need to complete a degree. According to the office of Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey, the program could potentially benefit 1.8 million state residents who only have a high school diploma or an equivalent. There are another 700,000 state residents with some college credits but no degree. 
To learn about how the free college program will impact local institutions, the best of our knowledge is Paul Tuthill spoke with John Cook, president of Springfield Technical Community College. It certainly changes the affordability conversation, but I think for a whole host of families. Uh, people look at community colleges for a variety of reasons. You know, our average age, by the way, at STCC is 26. Uh, so this is very much in our wheelhouse. And again, their parents, they are already working. Uh, and so a lot of our students go part-time. This really ha- helps change the calculus for them in terms of the ability to just persist, to just continue. So there are many, many students that this will immediately benefit who already are enrolled at the college. There are what we hope to be many more who this gives them a chance to take a second look at college. And and again, Yes, affordability is absolutely part of that, but also this idea of taking some of the guesswork out with how they fit in college along with work, along with life and parenting, things like that. So how does this work? Essentially, it's it's termed last dollar. So we do ask students to fill out the FAFSA, which is that federal financial aid form. Uh, there already have been uh, state grant and other Uh, support programs, and so we put those into the formula. And then if there's a remaining balance, that really is the reconnect piece. Uh, And so that's how we have students avoid any need for loans. And and what's particularly unique uh, about this is it not only covers tuition fees, but it will cover books, supplies, uh, some of the particular equipment a program might, might require. So it is very comprehensive. Overall, what kind of an impact do you see this this having? It's a little early. I would say certainly uh, things are looking better for us. Um, This is an important fall uh, with where we are, of course, with the pandemic and lots of considerations. We are up uh, fall over fall in terms of our enrollment. Uh, We won't really know until mid-September, but we also do what's called flex terms. So we have another entree point in October. Um, So all that is to say it's a little early to know how ReConnect will impact enrollment this fall. We really do see the value, the benefit, a lot of upside with long-term. Not only that flex term entry point in October, but January, I think we'll have a much better runway, of course, to line this up to really help communicate and spread the word. So I think, again, things are very encouraging right now. It's a little early to tell. Uh, We should have a a really good sense of how we've done um, inviting folks in uh, for spring semester. Governor Healy announced new funding for each of the state's community colleges, $100,000 to each school to help you implement this program. So what are you going to do specifically with that money? Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly look to all the avenues um, in the sort of media universe, obviously including digital, social media. Other, we, we certainly want to put the word out in all the ways that students and families um, re- really look for their information. We'll use print. So all, all, it's all of the above, um, and it's definitely helpful to the fact that each community college received that sort of dedicated marketing communication funding. I will, I will note the other part of this week, not just Mastery Connect, but also tuition equity, which provides in-state tuition to undocumented students, is a very big part of this week, and it dovetails to this as well because those students also will have access all state grant programs, including Mass Reconnect. So we want to communicate to a whole host of folks in our communities around this pathway by way of community college. That's John Cook, president of Springfield Technical Community College in Massachusetts, speaking with the best of our knowledges, Paul Tuthill.
This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1720. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan, the latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.